So you don't just come to receive, but come praying that God would use you to encourage and build somebody up here. And so I just encourage you, use the time after the service well. Use it as an opportunity to serve one another, to greet newcomers. That's a great way to love as Christ has loved us. Well, my name is Michael McKittrick, and I'm the church planting resident here at The Vine. And glad to be continuing in First Peter with you this morning. And as I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about expectations. Have you ever gone into like a movie and you have like these really, really high hopes that's going to be great. And then it's like average and you walk out super disappointed, right? But then conversely, maybe like a friend like drags you along to a movie you think is going to be terrible. And it's actually like average. And you're like, wow, that was really good, right? You've been there, right? So expectations matter. Now imagine with me the different expectations you would have based off these two trips. One of them is a Viking river cruise, where their motto is, uh, explore the world in comfort. Now, this other trip is a trip to the Antarctic run by Ernest Shackleton. This apparently was, uh, some people think he wrote this, some people think he didn't, but either way, it's an interesting contrast. It says this, here was the ad he ran, supposedly. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, Long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in the case of success. You'd probably have a little different expectation for that trip compared to Viking river cruises, right? So here's the question this morning. Is the Christian life more like a Viking river cruise or the Antarctic expedition? How do you think about it? Maybe it's somewhere in the middle. But what is your expectation of what it looks like to live the Christian life and follow Jesus? Because our expectations matter. Our expectations will shape how we live. And so I think it's good for us this morning to remember that for the majority of Christians around the world even today, and the majority of Christians throughout history, their experience has been more like the Antarctic expedition. That suffering is the norm in following Jesus. That's, that, that's normal. Uh, Jesus, when, before he left, said that you will have trouble in this world. And Paul, in First Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy, writes these words. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So is that a category in your brain for the Christian life? That there might be suffering involved. Is that something that you're expecting and are aware of? Because if you are thinking you're going on a Viking river cruise, you will pack very differently than if you're going to Antarctica, right? You're going to prepare differently. And so today, Peter, and God's being through Peter, wants to help us be prepared for the actual journey we're going to be on. He wants to say, look, if you're going to go on a certain type of journey, you've got to pack the right equipment. If you're going to get in the game, you've got to get your head in the game. And if you're going to war, you don't just wander in, you arm yourself. And so Peter wants us to be armed this morning for the battle of living for God. It's hard to live for him. So we need to be armed up. And that really fits the whole context of what we've been doing so far in 1 Peter, right? In 1 Peter 2.21, we read these words. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so you might follow in his steps. And just two weeks ago, we heard these words, for it is better to suffer for doing good 
if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So that's the context. But that's hard. And so let's just stop and pray before we read 1 Peter chapter 4 and ask God to help us this morning. So you pray with me? Father, we are indeed weak. Just as physical creatures, we have limits. We have weaknesses. And yet even more so because of our rebellion against you and sin, we are, we are weak. We are broken. So we need your help this morning. Thank you that you are a God that desires and loves to help, to build up, to redeem. So this morning, would you speak? Would you help us to listen? Would you help us to grow in desiring living for you even over any other comfort. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so let me read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles or unbelievers want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So, this is God's Word. And it's, it's clear as you look at it, there's this main command that everything else hinges off of. And it's in verse 1, and it's arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Which begs the question, what way of thinking are we to arm ourselves with, right? So this is where it's really helpful just to think about context. And so 317 really kicked off kind of this little section here. And 317, again, I'll read it to you, says, It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. That's a way of thinking, right? A way of thinking that says, I would rather live in a way that honors God and lives for Him, even if that involves suffering, than to not suffer but do evil. That's, that's a certain way of, of thinking. And we heard last week, right? We picked up at verse 18 last week, how Christ also suffered once for sins. He was a model of what it looked like to live for God and to suffer, right? We, we, we saw that. And then really what we saw last week was this, Peter almost does like this little tangent where he just wants to so much talk about how amazing it is that Jesus suffered and rose again, that he, he talks about his, his victory over the spirits. He talks about how just like in Noah's day, there was there was vindication or victory in the end for those who followed God. But now in verse 1 of chapter 4, it's almost like he picks up the train of thought from 3.18. And he says, for Christ also suffered. So he's like, okay, I mentioned you need to have this mindset of being willing to suffer for doing good for God. I gave you the example of Christ as a model, and now I'm challenging you, embrace his mindset. That's almost like his logic. Can you see that? You're called to suffer, to live for God. Jesus is a model, so embrace this way of thinking and living. And that's really confirmed in our passage when 
right after saying, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, I think he really draws out that same way of thinking. He says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. See how familiar that sounds? I'm going to live for God, not for human passions, and that's going to involve some suffering. That's, that's the mindset. The mindset is saying, I want to live for God no matter what the cost is. That's the mindset. But when you think about it, you realize that this isn't just like abstract thinking. Like when he says, arm yourselves with this way of thinking, he's not saying, you're sitting on your couch and you're like, oh yeah, I think it would be nice to go to the Antarctic rather than on the Viking River cruise. That's not what he's talking about, right? Not this abstract thinking. He's thinking a thinking that's a desire and intent. It's the kind of thinking that you read Shackleton's ad and you see the Viking River cruise and you're like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get on that Antarctic exploration. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to embrace any obstacle because I've embraced this willingness, this desire, this intention to go. That's what Peter's inviting us to. This willingness, this desire to do everything we can to live for God, even if it involves suffering. Now the thing is, I don't know about you, but I don't wake up in the morning naturally on my own and think, yes, today's to-do list, suffer, right? That's just not on my to-do list, right? It's not by nature my instinct to go, how can I just help everyone else today at the cost of myself? The reality is, as I look at my own life, is so often my default is, what's good for Michael, right? And you see that in kids. From day one, they are about number one, right? I can tell you, if you want to go volunteer in the Sunday school class room back there, you will not have to teach any of the kids to disobey. You'll not have to teach any of them to try to steal a toy from another kid. You won't have to teach that, right? You will have to teach them how to share, right? Because they're hardwired from day one to think about what's good for me. And so how can we shift from thinking all about me to thinking all about God and embracing suffering for him? If that's the command, how are we actually going to arm ourselves up to change in that way? So Peter's going to give us three helps, three pieces of equipment, three ways to arm ourselves to embrace a willingness to suffer, to live for God. So the first one is he's going to point us to Jesus. Notice that's how our passage starts, right? He's just been talking all about Jesus, and yet he says again, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. He wants to start with Jesus. He wants to start with the gospel because that's always the motivation for any kind of obedience to God. If you look at the Bible, it's not obey so that you get in with God. It's always look at what God did to love you. Now obey in light of that. That's always the pattern in Scripture, and Peter does that pattern here. And he's really just doing shorthand here, right? Christ suffered because he just talked all about why he suffered. Well, why did he suffer? Well, let's look back at 3.18. Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Here's why Jesus suffered. And maybe you're asking, well, like, well, why do we even have to suffer? Well, Peter's saying, look, Christ suffered once for sins. You want to know why there's suffering in the world? It's because of sin. And that can show up in many ways. One way is sometimes our own sin, our own rebellion against God brings its own negative consequences. Probably all of us to some degree have tasted a bit of that. But that's not where all suffering comes from. But some of it does. The Bible also says that some suffering comes from other people's sin against us, right? 
You've probably experienced that. You've been hurt. You've experienced pain because somebody else sinned against you. And then the third category is that because our first parents and all of us have collectively rebelled against God, there is just general suffering in the world. The world is broken. This is where a lot of sickness comes from. This is where a lot of natural disasters come from. We just live in a world broken by sin. Suffering is the reality because of sin. But here's, here's something to arm yourself with. That's not where the story ends. Because Christ, who is the righteous one, it says, he's perfect. He didn't deserve to sin. He suffered for sins. He suffered for people like me and you who don't have it all together, who aren't perfect, who aren't righteous, that he could bring us back to God, that he could fix that broken relationship. And one day he promises to make everything new again, everything perfect. That's good news. That suffering isn't the last word that Jesus has redeemed, has transformed suffering. Our sin led to suffering. His suffering for those in Jesus leads to blessing. That is good news. And when you start to grasp that, when you start to really believe and go, wow, Jesus did that for me. He suffered, embraced that for me. That starts to change you. It starts to change what you love. It starts to change what you desire. It's kind of like in The, the Dark Knight Rises. It's, I love the Batman movies by Christopher Nolan. And uh, there's a character in it, Catwoman. And she has this long criminal record, and she's heard of this program that will wipe out all of her criminal record, clear it all. And so the bad guys promise it to her if they'll just do work for her. And she does, and she does, and she does. And she even befriends Batman and betrays him to them, but she never ends up with it. But later in the movie, after Batman has suffered, has come back, and before this final battle, he just gives it to her. And she goes... You're just giving it to me? Aren't you afraid I'm going to run away? Which is a good question. She betrayed him once already. She has what she wants now. Why would she stick around for a final battle in which she might suffer and even die? And Batman just looks at her and says, you won't. And she doesn't. And Peter's saying, that's how the gospel works. When you realize that Christ suffered for you, then all of a sudden it changes you. And you're not just all about you anymore. You're all about Jesus because of what he did for you. And you're motivated to say, well, if I have to suffer anyways in this world, I might as well suffer for something that matters, for someone that matters, Jesus. So that's what I'm going to embrace. And then as your hearts change that way, Jesus also becomes the model and encouragement for what it looks like, that the road of suffering leads to life, Right? Because when he was put to death in the flesh, passage says, he was made alive in the spirit afterwards. And if you walk that path too, there's encouragement because Peter says in verse 6 of our chapter, chapter 4, the same words for Christians, that they might live in the spirit the way God does. There's encouragement for you. You can walk a road that Jesus has walked because he's walked it first and end up not just in suffering, but in life. And so if you want to be able to embrace suffering to live for God, you've got to first look to Jesus, see how he suffered for you and say, wow, that changes who I want to live for. It's not all about me anymore. That's going to help you. 
It's going to change your heart. But Peter also gives us a second reason. So it's like, once your heart's changed, once you're looking at Jesus and you want to live for him, the second kind of key piece you need to know is you need to grasp that the fastest and best way to live for God and the fastest way to run away from sin is to embrace a willingness to suffer. He says in verse uh, 1 and 2, Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Because here's the reality, right? Right now in this world, as we're living in the flesh, in our bodies, in a world broken by sin, it's often easier to not live for God. It's sometimes easier to just go along with sin. And so Peter's saying, look, if you want to avoid a path of sin, which sometimes feels easier, you're going to have to mentally prepare yourself to embrace suffering. And as you embrace that suffering to live for God, that's going to walk you away from sin. So think about it this way. Imagine you're in a social situation with a bunch of friends. Something's starting to go down that's not good. And you know you should probably exit. But you know that's going to cost you. It's going to cost you socially. There's going to be a little bit in that sense of suffering involved. If, if you're just saying what's the easiest, you're going to stay in that moment. But if you say, I'm willing to take the cost, and you leave, in that moment, as you choose to embrace suffering, what are you doing? You're walking away from sin. You're ceasing from sinning. So it's not that Peter's saying, look, if you suffer for God, you'll never, ever sin again. The Bible says very clearly we're still going to wrestle and fight with sin. But what he's saying is that there's, you, you can't walk two paths at the same time. And if you want to walk the path labeled God's will, it's also labeled suffering. But if you start to walk that path, that implicitly means you're no longer walking the path of sin and rebellion. You're ceasing from walking that path as you choose to walk a different path. You're making a decisive break. It's not that you're never going to struggle with walking the path of sin, but every time you turn yourself away from that path, you're turning yourself away from that path. You're ceasing from it. And the path of living for God is a hard path, but it's a good path. It's a path that many people have walked before us, and Peter gives us some encouragement. He says that in verse 2, to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. He says, look, there's only so much time left in your life. There's really not that much time left. You don't know how much time you have. Maybe some of you here have 70 years left. Maybe some of you have 10. Maybe some of you have one. We don't know who, what that is. So for the rest of the time that's left, for the little bit of time that remains, embrace the better path, even if it's harder, knowing it's only going to last for a while. Embrace that path. The path that lives for God is a path that runs away from sin. And yes, it's a path paved with blood, but it leads to life. The other alternative, he says, is verse 3. He says, instead, the time that has passed suffices. It, it was enough, the time that has passed, for doing what the Gentiles or unbelievers want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and laws idolatry. Peter's saying, look, there's been enough time wasted in a life that doesn't matter. 
There's been enough time wasted not living for God for things that don't last. Don't walk that path. Yes, it is a path that, if we're honest, often offers short-term pleasure. That's why people walk it, right? It's fun for a little bit. It just doesn't last in the end. And so he says, don't go that way. Don't, don't join in with sensuality and passions. That's just physical, giving in to all your physical desires, especially sexual ones. Don't give in to just going to these huge drinking parties where you're getting drunk. Don't give in to lawless idolatry, living for things other than God. Don't do that. It's not worth it. Don't give in to the life that says, I can have whatever I want to excess. There's no limits. It's all about me. Don't do that. It doesn't pay off. It might be a path paved with pleasure, but it leads to death. Don't walk that path. Don't waste your time there. And this would have been really real for his first readers, right? I mean, in Greco-Roman culture, which he's writing to, they're famous for their parties. Uh, In fact, even just to be a good civic citizen, you had to participate in festivals in which there are these huge parties. You had to worship the emperor. And so when these Christians said, no, we're not engaging that anymore, they were cutting themselves off from the civic life of their city. They're inviting in the charge that they were traitors to their city, traitors to the Roman Empire. They were inviting in maligning. That's what Peter says in verse 4, right? With respect to this, with respect to you walking away from sin, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. But not just surprised, they malign you. It's not like they're like, oh, that's weird, but you can kind of go do your own thing. It's no, that's going to bother them. And it's the same today. Because when you choose to walk a different road, you're implicitly telling people the road you're walking is not the right one. And people don't like hearing that. So there's going to be some pushback. In a culture that wants excess and to go for everything they want, there's going to be pushback when you say, no, that's not good, that's not right. You're going to push back. I can think of one summer I was working uh, cutting grass for the city I lived in, uh, you know, mowing all the parks. And all the guys I worked with initially started out really surprised. So they're like, as, as we got to know each other, they're like, wait a minute. Like, you aren't getting wasted every night. You don't smoke weed. You don't have sex and you don't watch porn. What do you do? And I was like, actually, a lot. Um, there's a lot I can do other than that. But they were surprised. But then not just surprised... They, like, ragged on me all summer. And it was, like, all summer. It was, like, every day I just knew I was going in. It just felt like I was getting shot at all day. That was hard, right? That's, that, maybe it looks like that. Or maybe when you're choosing to walk for God, it looks like my friend Dennis. He's a Liberian in Liberia. And he's part of this church planning movement. And in this one little village, rural village, a lot of people came to trust in Jesus. And this church got started. And they built a building. We're meeting in it. And then the annual uh, time came in the summer for them to go out into the woods and worship the ancestors and the spirits. And the village elders invite all the Christians to come along too. And they said, no, we don't do that anymore. And they weren't just surprised, they were angry. And so they boarded up the church and said, you can't meet here anymore. And my friend Dennis, overseeing this church planning movement, knew this church needed encouragement. And so even though his wife was eight and a half months pregnant in the U.S., ready to give birth probably any day, And even though he had a plane ticket a week away booked, he went to this village to pray with the church and to preach the gospel. And the village elders were not just surprised, they were angry 
And so they tied him to a tree in the middle of town and left him for two days. But then that didn't work. They had to throw him in a shack because he was just sharing the gospel to everyone who walked by. So that couldn't fly. So they throw him in a shack for two days. No water, no bathroom, no food. But people prayed. And thankfully, he was, he was released. And I got to meet with him about a month later after his baby was born. He was in the U.S. for a short time. I, I, I got to ask him, like, what were you thinking what was going through your brain? You've got this eight-and-a-half-month pregnant wife, and you go into this situation. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. I love him, and I want to go. And one of the things I loved about my friend Dennis is he also lost most of his family in the Civil War in Liberia, all his siblings, parents. You've never met anyone with more joy. And You need to hear this this morning. The path marked suffering in the Christian life is also marked joy. They're not antithetical. They're not opposite. I don't know what suffering will look like for you, for living for God. No one knows the future. I don't know if it's going to be more like just being mocked. I don't know if it's losing your job. I don't know if it's being tied up to a tree. We don't know the future. But everyone who will live for God, everyone who says no to living the way of sin, which the majority of the world loves, will experience some kind of suffering. And the only way you're going to be ready to handle that is if you've embraced that actually you love God enough that you'd rather suffer so as to kill sin in your life than to be comfortable. So arm yourself with the reality that the best way to fight sin is to suffer. But the reality is that's really hard, right, to, to believe sometimes that it's the best thing. So that's why this last piece is actually pointing us to the future. This last kind of encouragement is about the future. So look at verse 5 with me. He says this, But they, those who will malign you, will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. He says, look, I know, Christian, it might feel like in the court of public opinion today that you're losing, that you're going to be found guilty. But there's another court coming, a more supreme and final authoritative court with God as the judge of everyone, living and dead. And that's the only courtroom that matters being found right in front of. And it's got a different standard than the courtroom of public opinion. And so he wants to encourage these believers. It's kind of like Robin Hood. I, I love Robin Hood. The tales about him, right? You know, England, he steals from the rich, gives to the poor. He's, he's fighting corrupt Prince John. Now, on, in Prince John's mind, who's Robin Hood? He's a criminal. He's a thief. He's a traitor. But Robin Hood knows something. The real king, King Richard, is away. But he's going to come back one day. And when King Richard comes back, what's going to happen to Prince John? He's going to be judged. And Robin Hood will be lifted up, not as a criminal, but as a hero and rewarded as the loyal subject he is. And Peter's saying, that's what it's like for you Christians. I know right now it feels like the world's saying, you're guilty. But there's a day coming when the king's going to return. And he's going to judge and make everything right. And he will bring justice to those who oppose you. Which is why, as we read several weeks back, we can bless and love those who hate us. Because we don't need to get justice now. 
We know justice is coming, so we can choose to love now, right? That's so freeing. But then Peter goes on in verse 6 to say something that is very confusing at first glance. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. What does that mean, right? I mean, when you first read that, it's just kind of weird. So I love what Sherlock Holmes says. He says, take whatever is impossible and get rid of it. And whatever's left, however improbable, is the truth. So what he's saying is, get rid of all the things that clearly aren't true and see what's left. I think that's really good. Just a good place to start for us. When you hit something hard, what does it definitely not mean? And let's work our way to what it could mean, right? So here's what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that the gospel is preached to people after they die as a second chance to believe and repent. It's not what it means. Here's why. We have several passages in Scripture that clearly go against this. One is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says this, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You die, then you face judgment. There's no dying and second chance. Or Jesus tells a parable of a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And when they die, and they end up in different spots because Lazarus, the poor man, was righteous, and the rich man was not, there's a chasm between them. And Abraham in the story says, no one can cross this chasm. There's no switching sides after you die. You pick your side now. But it can't mean preaching the gospel to people afterwards. So what could it mean? Let's go back to verse 6. And I want us to actually look at the very last phrase and work our way backwards. Because I think it will help us. So verse 6 says, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Who are the they that live in the Spirit the way God does? Well, if you're thinking about your Bibles, hopefully you're thinking, well, the only people that are described as spiritually alive like God are believers in Jesus. He, may, he raised us from spiritual death to life. So we could say believers might live in the Spirit the way God does. So what judgment in the flesh do believers receive just like all people receive? The answer, I think, is death. Every person, regardless of your believer or not, if you live in this world, will die. And so you can imagine Peter saying, look, this is why the gospel was preached even to believers who are now dead, because though they were judged by dying, they are now alive with God. Because here's what's probably going on in the context, I think, right? You have these believers who are living differently, who aren't getting to experience all the fun, quote-unquote, that the their non-Christian friends are, and then they go, well, hey, you, you talk all about judgment coming one day and how Jesus, you know, gives you eternal life, but your friend just died, just like my friend died. What good is it being a Christian? At least we get to enjoy this life. We all die still. What's the point? And Peter's saying, no, there is a point. Because even though there is judgment coming, and even though we're all going to experience death, this is why the gospel is preached to believers. So even if they die on earth, just like everyone else dies, that's not the end of the story. They live in the spirit the way God does. The gospel is worth it. It does make a difference, even if you can't see it right now. And so Peter is saying, look, you've got to have your eyes on the future if you want to know how to suffer. You've got to say, look, I'm not going to look at the fun of the drinking party and say, that's where it's at. Because even sometimes the throwing up that comes afterwards is a small picture of where that road leads in the long term. 
It says, don't embrace that path. Don't embrace the path of going after whatever your heart wants because what happens when your heart gets what it wants? Five minutes later, you want something else and you're feeling empty again. Don't embrace that. Don't go after people's good opinions of you because you know what? Even if they're the most powerful person in the world and you have their good opinion, you know what's going to happen to them? They're going to die. But God will, not, will never die. His opinion is the one that matters. Don't sacrifice your eternal destiny. Don't be on the wrong side of the eternal judgment just for a few pleasures now. Have your eyes set on the future. That's going to help you to be willing to embrace suffering now because you know the future turns out good. So if we want to live for God, friends, we will have to suffer at some point. That's going to be hard. But Peter has hopefully encouraged us this morning with three kind of good encouragements, right? He said, look, I want you to first look to Jesus. Look at how he suffered for you. See how he has loved you and let that flow out into love for him. And maybe some of you this morning, that's where you just need to start. Maybe you haven't really grasped how Jesus has loved you and has suffered for you. And you just need to start there this morning. Say, God, Help me to actually love Jesus because all he's done for me and want to live for him. And maybe some of you this morning, you just need to be reminded of that because you've been focusing a lot on what you have to do, but you've lost sight of what Jesus has done for you. So as we come up to take communion in a bit, don't just go through the motions. When you take that bread and eat it, it's a reminder there was a real body that was pierced, that was given up to death for you. And when you drink that juice, it's a reminder that it was real blood that you could touch and smell that was poured out for you. That's how much he loved. Look to him. Allow his love to transform you to love him. So that second, you can look around your current life and say, I love him enough that I'm going to embrace suffering as the quickest route to living for him. And then third, in the midst of that hardness, look ahead to the future, to that judgment day when you will stand before God and he will declare that everyone who has trusted in Jesus is right before him and gets to experience coming home. Don't trade that for a few cheap pleasures now. Don't throw away eternity with God for just a little bit of joy now. Look ahead and say, I'm willing to suffer now for what's to come because of Jesus. And then if you do that, if you arm yourself with this willingness to suffer for God, here's how Peter almost finishes his letter. It says, after you have suffered a little while, just a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Father, I pray that this morning that we would have seen Jesus and love him more for who he is and what he's done for us. And that would flow into a life that's lived for him even when it costs us because we know the reward of being with Jesus 
in the end is worth it. So would you change our hearts to have that desire? Change us from being selfish comfort seekers to selfless seekers of living for you. For your glory and our good. Amen.